Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Mother's Day is coming up, so today we're having a special tribute to mums everywhere. And since memories of mothers tend to be accompanied by warm, comforting meals around the family table, we've included a recipe by our fabulous culinary author, Rachel Koo. Rachel Koo will be here to talk about her recently published French cookbook, The Little Paris Kitchen as well as her her experiences living and cooking in Paris. We're also including an interview with Virginia McKenna, the actress from the film Born Free, and reader of our new book, An African Love Story. Finally, we're completing this holiday salute with an extract from the audiobook edition of Millions Like Us by Virginia Nicholson. This audiobook includes the personal tales from women who lived through the Second World War and their various experiences. It's also narrated by a multicast group of actresses. So first up, here's Rachel Koo. Hi everyone, my name's Sarah. I'm sitting here with Rachel Koo, author of The Little Paris Kitchen, which is out in shops today. What we're going to do is we're going to start off with Rachel Koo giving us a, a recipe which is perfect for Mother's Day, and then we're just going to go on to a quick interview. So Rachel, over to you. Bonjour Sarah! <laughs> Hello! Um, so I picked out a recipe from my cookbook, which is really simple to do. It's called a quatre quarts aux agrumes. So it's a citrus fruit cake. It's literally a cake Parisians would do um, when they need to whip up something quick. It's like every Parisian knows how to make this cake. It's like the, the French sponge cake. Very easy. You just need um, like eggs, four eggs, 250 grams of caster sugar, 250 grams of plain flour, pinch of salt, bit of uh, lemon zest and orange zest, baking powder and 250 grams of melted butter. So if you want to know how to incorporate it, it's very simple. You separate eggs, whisk them up until they're fluffy, the egg whites, whisk up the egg yolks until they're fluffy, and you mix the dry ingredients, and then you mix all the ingredients together. Bake it at 180 degrees for about 30 to 40 minutes, and that's it. And then you have a lovely, very zingy citrus cake for your mum. Um, simple to do, and it's done within, what, less than an hour. Sounds amazing, and something even... I think non-cooks like myself will be able to achieve. I've been looking through the book and obviously with it being the little Paris kitchen, a lot of French in there. But we were just wondering, obviously with yourself not being from France, do you think you bring anything to French cooking that's new and revolutionary or odd and a little bit unusual? Or do you put a little bit of your own personality in there? Um, I think the way I approach French food is because I'm not French and I don't have a French granny or French mum. I'm like, okay, so you've got a classic coq au vin. Um, you have normally you stew it it's a, like a red wine chicken stew and mm. I was like well you know what I don't want to stew it I'm going to use all the ingredients but instead of stewing it I'm going to marinate it in the red wine but then I'm going to put it on a barbecue stick and I'm going to barbecue it so you've got the same flavours you've got in a cockle van but instead of got a heavy stew you've got kind of a really kind of very summery dish you can um, have on your barbecue or if you don't have a barbecue like me I use it on a griddle pan so it's got the same flavors but just a different way of approaching it and the the cookbook is very much like that you got your classic recipes sometimes I leave it as is and you're like you don't need to change yeah. anything but other times I'm like well actually you know what well, why not add a different flavor or why not approach it from a different you know angle and cook it a bit differently so I'm really not afraid of breaking like French culinary rules, yeah. which a lot of people think you must do it like this. And French food is complicated and you have to be a Michelin starred chef to make it. And this is like the opposite. The, these are all recipes which are 
very simple to do. Um, they are home cooking, so it's the kind of stuff you you find in a lot of Parisian house at homes. Um, and it's all recipes I've tested in my kitchen, and my kitchen's very small. It's like three square meters. It's got two gas rings and a mini <laughs> toaster oven. So I always say, if I can cook these recipes in my little kitchen, then anybody can. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it seems pretty accessible for anyone, even the non-cooks amongst us. Um, as we were saying that, you know, you're treating the French recipes a little bit differently. Are there any ingredients that, you know, the French treat completely differently to what we do in Britain? Um, I always think the French re- French cooking is very similar, or the French flavours are similar to what we have in English cooking. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you don't uh, you don't actually need to cook it that much. You know, instead of stewing it, you don't need to stew it for long. You actually do it quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the steak tata, which is just like fresh beef chopped up. Um, and you just add an egg yolk and then you season it with capers and cornichon and um, a bit of chopped uh, shallot. That's it. You know, you never think in England to serving uh, raw beef. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like, it's not something... So the way of approaching a really good product, if you've got this amazing beef, um, is you, you can eat it raw and just season it with a few ingredients and it's delicious, you know. Yeah, I mean... As well, when reading the book, you've obviously got quite a creative personality. Did you think that, obviously, your background in art and design helped shape the book, has helped shape your recipes? Um, Actually, when I was writing the book, I was trying to simplify the recipes. And a way of simplifying the recipes for me was actually to draw them, to illustrate them. Because Mm -hmm. if I had to illustrate them, then I'd have to make it simple enough for people to understand the illustrations. Um, So I think... The my art and design background has influenced the way I approach food and also with the cookbook I mean I've even done a few illustrations for the cookbook so I think it's helped me you know helped me to try and understand what the readers who if you're you know new to cooking or you're not that experience Mm -hmm. how to make it simpler for somebody who's you know a novice so I think because I know how to cook I know I've got a lot of experience I've trained in patisserie so it's sometimes you forget that as a writer that other people out there don't know how to do it so um that way I try to put my shoe put myself in the the shoes of the reader so um yeah I think it did help me also I mean and now as well the question that is burning in everyone's mind is obviously little Paris kitchen are there any plans for a bigger kitchen now that the book deal the tv show (laughs) you're gonna Go bigger, grander. I was joking when we were filming the TV show because it was really tough filming in my little kitchen. It was, you know, it's three square meters. You've got a camera crew, you've got a director, you've got a cameraman, you've got lights, you've got producer, you know, you've got like 10 people in your tiny apartment. So we were joking saying we're going to do the penthouse kitchen next time because <laughs> we want a big <laughs> kitchen. Um, I don't know. I quite like the idea of having a little kitchen. Um, I think you can, you don't need a lot to make amazing food. Um, So, but I would like uh, to move because in my current apartment, I live in a studio where um, every day I have to make my futon bed 
So you have to pull it out, <laughs> you know, you go to bed, you sleep, and then in the morning you have to put it back in because if you don't put it back in, you are cooking in your bed. <laughs> um, so I do, I would like to move. So hopefully um, if everything goes to plan, then I, I will move. But I don't know wh- where and or how big it will be. You know, who knows? I'm always up for an adventure. I mean, the little Paris kitchen is, as well. You know, it's not just cooking in a little kitchen. It's also about my adventure in Paris. It's about about how I discovered Paris, how I've, um, you know, um, learned about, you know, French food, French culture. It's um, a little glimpse into my Paris life. Yeah, it definitely reads more like a kind of storybook in your adventure through France than just a kind of generic cookbook. Here's an ingredient, here's your recipe, get it done. It's quite interesting the way that you've you've gone about it in that way. I mean, was that intentional or was it just something that you found quite easy to do as writing it? Um, I wanted to do with this cookbook, I wanted to show people a little glimpse into Paris life. Um, so, you know, the chapters are set up with everyday kind of cooking. So the kind of cooking I do during the week. And then I have uh, goûter, so afternoon tea time. And that was very, it's very much part of my life. Certainly when I was looking after children as an au pair, you know, I'd always have to make tea time snacks. And then you have the aperitif, you know, like um, you go in the evening, you catch up with friends, you have a glass of wine, a bit of charcuterie, and then you have some nice nibbles. And off, obviously with the weather getting nicer, you get the picnics by the Seine. So that's part of Paris life. And then you, you finish off, if you've got a bit more time, you do these amazing kind of dinner meals for friends and family where you want to spend more time and you want to do something like really wow, you know. And then w- the reason why I moved to Paris was patisserie. So I've added that in a nice p- chapter on desserts. There's some recipes in the cookbook which are, you know, really simple, you know, easy. You can do in like 15 minutes. But they are also recipes if you're looking for a challenge and you're looking for something where you're going to learn a new technique in French cooking, then there are one or two in there for you as well. Amazing. And finally, just just to round us off here, um, what is your favorite recipe? What is my favorite? It's really hard because it depends on my mood. So and also I'm I'm very much I cook with the seasons because the way I cook is I usually go to my local um, fresh food market and then I just see what's in season and what inspires me. But I do really like the eggs and pots. Um, which is au cocotte, which is really easy. You have some creme fraiche, a couple of tables of creme fraiche in a ramekin, crack an egg in, season it with some salt and pepper, maybe a bit of nutmeg. You can put chopped herbs in there. Pop it in the oven for about 15 minutes, and then that's it. And you can use some fresh crusty bread to dip in there or some steamed asparagus if you want to go a bit posh. Or when I cooked it um, for friends and family, you know, if you want to do some lovely colorful pepper sticks and carrot sticks that's really nice because that's it's just an easy recipe and you all I always have eggs in the fridge and I and I always have a pot of creme fraiche so that's a easy throw together dish so thank you Rachel for coming in and speaking to us obviously the little Paris kitchen out now in shops and tv show is airing this Monday the 19th at 8 30 p.m bbc2 Ooh, <laughs> a bit scary, but you can see how small my kitchen is. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Merci. That was Rachel Koo talking about all things delicious. Next up is Virginia McKenna talking to our audiobook producer, Roy McMillan, about her experiences in Africa. Uh, first of all, Virginia, uh, 
you've just had to read really quite a substantial book. Did you enjoy the process of reading an audiobook? I mean, you've done it before, but did you enjoy this one? I did enjoy this one very, very much indeed. I suppose because having first met Daphne Sheldrick in 1968, which is a very long time ago, um, I haven't seen her that often over the years in between, but nevertheless, the kind of work she does, I'm so sympathetic and, and, and admiring of her dedication um, to her incredible work, rescuing elephants, saving elephants, and also educating people about the nature of elephants, which perhaps is at the heart of it all. It was a, really a great privilege, I felt, to be asked to read her story, and it is an exceptional one. There's no other word for it, really. I, I never met anyone who's had a life quite like that. Listening to it from, as it were, the other side, uh, you seemed very clearly to identify with quite a lot of the stories, not just about the rescuing animals, also uh, elements of her personal life, the importance of her husband David to her and the, the work that he did. And you really did seem to inhabit those moments quite profoundly. Did it feel like that to you personally? Yes, it did feel like that because I suppose another thing we have in common, apart from our um, devotion, dedication to wild animals and allowing them to be themselves, is um, the love we had for our respective husbands. Um, I was married to mine for 37 years, and um, although he died not as long ago as David Sheldrick died, um, nevertheless, um, when you lose your soulmate um, and you read about someone else's soulmate expressed in the way that Daphne expresses it, there was such a connection I did find quite a, some of it quite hard actually to read uh, because it, it awakened again emotions in me. You know, you, you, you learn over time to sort of deal with your feelings and, um, but sometimes some, something sparks them off again and there they come to the fore and uh, once or twice or three times in this reading I think perhaps, perhaps it did. I hope I didn't overload it though with, with, with too much emotion because of course sometimes if you do too much you, you stop the reader feeling it themselves. So I hope I didn't spoil it for them in that way. There was also, it seemed to me, a similar identification with her fury and indignation and outrage at the treatment meted out to wild animals in Kenya, which again seemed to mirror so many of your concerns uh, about wildlife. Uh, and again, it, it felt, listening to, to you reading, as if you were feeling exactly the same things as she was at the time that she was saying them. Did you, again, find yourself completely in tune with the text at those times? Oh, absolutely, 100% in tune with everything Daphne feels about, about wildlife and how we exploit it and how we are cruel to it. And uh, possibly um, hers is more focused on what happens to wild animals in the wild and the poaching and, and the wounding and the persecution of animals in the wild and the orphaned babies that are left victims of, of, of the poaching and, and ivory trade, which, of course, you know, I'm totally against 100% as well. Um, I, I suppose uh, the work we do in the Born Free Foundation, we, we go slightly sideways from that too because we also criticise keeping animals, uh, uh, wild animals in captivity in zoos. And one 
one line of hers which sums it all up for me when she said, a hundred miles for an elephant is just like a stroll, or words to that effect. And I thought, I hope the people who keep elephants in, in compounds and in what they think are large enclosures, you know, which take the elephants about two minutes to get from one side to the other, I hope they take that to heart too, because by putting an elephant in captivity, you've actually denied it virtually everything about its natural life. And um, Daphne, I know, is very much against the zoos, although her focus is a different one. That was a very moving interview from Virginia McKenna. Finally, we have an extract from the audiobook edition of Millions Like Us. Denial gripped the nation. Few of Britain's teenagers were readers of newspapers. Many of them barely knew where Germany, Poland or Czechoslovakia were. Margaret Perry from Nottingham was surely a typical 17-year-old. She had been taught in the schoolroom that the British Empire was coloured a lovely red across the globe. She also knew that Europe was... Full of foreigners who couldn't speak English. While... Tea came from India and Africa was full of little black pygmies. War didn't happen in England. Any fighting that might occur would take place over the Channel in France. I had no idea what had been happening in Europe during the last six years. Why my mother was getting so upset, I couldn't imagine. I did recall she'd mentioned something about zeppelins, whatever they were, flying over England, and Uncle Harry losing a leg in the trenches. Yes, I'd heard a lot about trenches, but they were in France, weren't they? Another bewildered young working-class woman was Mary Hewins from Stratford-upon-Avon. I couldn't understand the war, really. You know, what it was really for. Debutante Susan Mayrick was also oblivious, preoccupied by her coming-out commitments. I had no idea of the world situation. None. I had no idea the war was so close. Sixteen at the time, Mary Anjove, down in the West Country, recalls... Nobody knew what was coming. We were living in a fool's paradise. We all thought Germans were six foot tall and blonde. People saw Hitler as some kind of comedian. He looked so like Charlie Chaplin, jumping up and down and screaming. A sex divide that allocated homemaking to women and world affairs to men left Margaret, Mary, Susan and many like them across Britain clueless about the reality. With international tension mounting and reduced to guessing about their future, such young women looked to the comfortingly familiar. They turned to their mothers. And their mothers, who remembered how the First World War had affected them, had words of reassuring wisdom. I can remember my mum saying we must stock up on sugar and tea. Remembers Flo Marnie, now in her late eighties. Other prescient advice included... Get a little extra soap, darling, because soap rationing may well come in. And... Buy up hairpins... Kirby grips and elastic for knickers. Minds conditioned by decades of domesticity reached out for domestic solutions to the enemy's menace, and women prepared themselves in the way they knew best by shopping. Dolly Scannell's baby was born in July 1939. The way things were going, little Susan was off to a rocky start in life but her provident mother had seen things coming and purchased enough baby food to last a year. Kathleen Hale's husband had been prophesying war for years, telling her that England would be blockaded and that they would probably be reduced to eating rats. 
Kathleen bought a large supply of curry powder and tomato sauce. To make the rats more palatable. Virginia Graham ordered two entire cases of Bronco lavatory paper. It turned out to be far more than needed, and she gave it away as Christmas presents for years afterwards. And her best friend Joyce Grenfell cautiously purchased six pairs of silk stockings. Not enough, it turned out. Young Edna Hughes from Liverpool filled up a tea chest with necessities for her family. It was early 1939, and soon they were ready to withstand a siege, stocked with tins of corned beef, tea, cocoa and sugar. Months passed. Every so often, Edna's mother would find that there was nothing for tea and suggest raiding the chest. Come on, Ed. Let's open another tin of salmon. And alas, when war finally came, the tea chest was empty. Before the Munich Agreement, trenches had been dug in the parks. Gas masks had been fitted and issued, sandbags filled. Then Chamberlain returned and delivered his Peace for Our Time speech. There would be no war. The gas masks had been dumped on rubbish heaps, and the sandbags left leaking out their contents where they were abandoned. But by summer 1939, even the most resolutely withdrawn and unobservant members of the population could hardly fail to notice the build-up. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, please visit our website at penguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or if you'd rather tweet us, we're at Penguin Podcast on Twitter. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.